Okay, if you guys have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I'll open them up to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. We're going we're gonna to try and look at the last few verses of that, this chapter today. We're going to look at uh, verse 32 and read through 37, which is the last verse of this chapter. And uh, so Acts chapter 4, verse 32, here we go. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. 34. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called the apostle, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, this morning I pray that as we look at these uh, five verses and as we see some, some characteristics or marks of what we can look at today as a healthy church, um, I pray that you allow us to try and emulate those, uh, emulate those in our own individual lives, emulate those in our faith family. Um, Lord, uh, I pray that... that um, that what we say today brings you honor and glory. We pray that, that we stay true to your word, that we, try, that we stay focused here on what you have to say. Uh, Lord, I pray that you give me your heart, give me your words, and give me your passions. And we love you and thank you for all that you've done for us. We look forward to the things that you're going to do through us this morning. It's in your son's beautiful and precious and holy name we pray. Amen. It's been interesting as we've looked at the book of Acts, we've seen a lot already just in four chapters. Uh, as we've seen Jesus at the very beginning kind of give his last few words and ascend into heaven. And from there you see a group of, of disciples and, and the early followers, about 120 people, not really sure what to do, so they gather together in this upper room, more than likely in, in the temple. And for 10 days, they just, they're waiting, they're waiting, they're not sure what they're exactly waiting for, but they're waiting, and while they're waiting, they're praying, and, um, and then uh, suddenly, the Holy Spirit arrives, and the Holy Spirit arrives in a way that is just amazing to consider. Just this idea of, of in the midst of this prayer time, this massive sound of wind rushing through the building, and these tongues of fire over all their heads. I mean, it must have been an amazing sight. And then this ability for them to begin to start speaking these languages that they didn't know. And while all this is going on, the courtyards of the temple are filled with people. Again, this is during the time, the Feast of Pentecost. And so you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people there in the temple, there in Jerusalem, that wouldn't typically or normally be there. They had traveled from afar to be part of this feast. And so they hear all this ruckus, they hear this stuff going on, so they begin to listen, and then Peter stands up, and we talk about this, this day of Pentecost, this time where he preaches, 
and 3,000 people come to know Christ. They come and become part of this church. And so, bam, in like one message, the church goes from 120 people to 3,120 people like that. Um, and then as we've kind of talked about, the result of this big new movement, this change got some people nervous. And so Peter and John, you know, they're, they're doing their deal. They go to the temple again a, a day or two later, and G- Peter pulls like Jesus almost, where he goes and he heals a man. Only it wasn't in his own power, it was in Jesus' power. And, and this was a, a lame man, 40-some years old, had been lame his entire life. Suddenly he can walk, and it's pff, crazy. People see this. This is, this is like a living example, living, breathing miracle. Someone that they can go up to, they can talk to, they can ask questions to. I mean, this is a miracle. They've seen this. This is a guy that many of these people had walked past 40 years and seen this. And suddenly he can walk. He can, he, he can run. He can do cartwheels. He can do whatever. This is amazing. And, and, and so now Peter once again starts talking and preaching again. He takes this, it's almost like this healing of the man was like his opening illustration. And he uses this to gather a crowd. And, and, and with this crowd, he begins to just talk about Jesus. He talks about this Jesus who died on the cross for their sins. And he's, he's telling these people that they need to repent from their sins and turn to him. And boom, another 2,000. And they listen, they hear, and they do what Peter says. They repent and join the church. And so you, again, you go from 120 to 3,120 to 5,120 in just a matter of days. This massive growth. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that if you were to look at the situation and, and kind of figure out, maybe do a little study on what are the best methods in which we should try and grow a church, right? And, and like if we were to do that, maybe we were to have a little round table. Sunday after, you know, this morning after church, say, listen, what are some good ways that we can, you know, build our church and get the church bigger? And, you know, we might talk about, you know, maybe we do a little festival, you know, we get jumpy houses out here. Maybe we, we, we show a, some kind of Christmas movie and, and, and we can watch that and people will come and give them, we'll give them a hot cocoa and little wooden crosses, right? I don't know. Maybe, maybe we, could, we could think of all these different cool ways that we could try and attract people here, right? And that's kind of like our models that when we think about ways that we grow the church, we think of like a program or we think of a, some kind of function that we could put together that's going to create people to, to just kind of come and flock to us. But if we look at the situation that's going on here in, in this time period, um, when this early church is exploding, what we see, what we saw in this chapter, the beginning, first, half, first two-thirds of this chapter of, of four of Acts is that the, um, the temperament wasn't conducive for growth, at least by what we would think. I mean, Peter starts preaching, and it wasn't like the unbelievers, like the people that we would think would be against him that would, would turn on him. It was the church of the day. It was the temple. It was the, the high priest comes up. Um, he brings his temple guards with him, this police force. The other priests are, are joining in, and they have Peter and John arrested, and then he stands before this Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. 71 men, church leaders, like the elders. And you would think like they would be applauded for telling people about Jesus, right? Telling them about the truth. But that's not what happens. Like, again, I remind you guys that that same group that Peter's standing before is the same group that cast judgment on Jesus some 
two months earlier. And so the, the, the situation at, at, high, at hand, the, 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 the location that they're at, the, 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 the temperament of the government, of, of the religious institution, a lot of the religious leaders, it was not conducive for growth. It, wasn't, it wouldn't be a model, I think, that we would try and mimic today. Yet Christ used this for explosive growth. And in this, we see, I, I think, I, when I read these last few verses of, of Acts, it amazes me. I, I think right there you see proof of the Holy Spirit at work. And I think this is almost on par with the miracle of this man who, who did not walk for some 40 years being healed. And so I, I want us this morning to just highlight four, I think we can call them benchmarks of, of a healthy church. The first one we see in that, the very first verse that we read, um, it says, in verse 32 says, and now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I, I would underline those who believed were of one heart and soul. In that first few verses of that verse, we see Luke, who authored through the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts, express the unity of the people. Now, unity is not always an easy thing, is it? Sometimes I think we, we try and force unity in that, or we perceive unity to be something other than it needs to be. Like, like unity doesn't necessarily mean that we all have to have the same exact convictions that we all have to wear the same exact clothes. We have to eat the same exact foods. We have to um, discipline our children the same exact way, right? That doesn't, that doesn't mean if we do all those things that we become unified. That, if that was the case, then I think we, the Holy Spirit would just be trying to recreate Christian robots. And that's not what occurs. I mean, he's given us all different talents and abilities. He's given us all different personalities. You know, we think about parenting. One of the things that I've learned in my very young life is that um, each one of my children is different. And, and, and Courtney and I strive to be consistent on a lot of things, but the way in which we discipline our children at times can be different because one will respond to certain actions while the other one won't. Like I will, Mackenzie, I use my kids for illustrations when I'm not in the room. But, but Mackenzie, I remember, um, has always been our most sensitive child and probably will always be our most sensitive. Mackenzie, you know, when it came down to getting in trouble and if it was, you know, about time to give a spanking, I got, as soon as I would raise my hand, like the tears would fall, you know, and the face was red and the ugly cry came out. You didn't even have to barely touch her. And so I just kind of assumed as a parent, like, that would be the same way with the next child. And so I remember Addison, young age, and Addison used to do this thing with her fingers where she put them in her mouth backwards. And I remember she, I don't remember what she did wrong, but it was my job. Courtney said, listen, you go spank your daughter. So I remember going in, and I just thought, as soon as I lift my hand, tears will come down. You know, she'll, she'll get right and just, and she didn't. <laughs> and I remember spanking her. <laughs> And like, she just looked at me like, dad, that's the best you got. <laughs> that's it, dad. And, and so you realize as a parent, like, you know, certain things work differently, 
or have better impacts, right? And so, so I think we have to be careful that, that unity doesn't mean that we're all the exact same, that, that we have our differences. And that's what I think is so beautiful about this unity that we see. And that's why when I said earlier, like I think this is on par with a miracle of this lame man being healed. Because you're able to bring a, a, a body of people together from different backgrounds. And if we think about this, like, like we're Redemption Hill Church, you know, we're, we're small compared to what's going on here in the book of Acts. And our backgrounds are varied to a certain extent, but there's a lot of commonality here. But you go back to Acts, remember in Acts, when we read this part in, in Acts chapter 2, that when all this is going on, like Luke lists like 18 different nationalities. Like there's a wide array of people here. And so you're bringing people that speak in different languages. Uh, they're eating different types of foods. Uh, they're dressed differently. They're all sorts of different customs. And you're bringing them together. Yet, even with all of that, they have the same heart and soul. You know, and, and, and when we read this, understand, like as when we read about the heart throughout Scripture, he's not talking about this literal organ that beats blood, right? What, what, what they're describing is this, the, the inner essence of man. Our inner essence, what makes us, us. Like what, what, what consumes us. And in the midst of this, in the midst of all this going on, in the midst of this persecution already beginning, when, when two apostles were arrested simply for talking about Jesus, yet now we have 5,000 that are going to follow him, but they're all on the same page. They're all unified. To me, I think that's amazing. And so I think the, the first mark that we see of, of a good, of a healthy church is a church that's experiencing unity. Again, that doesn't mean we all always think alike, but when it gets down to our core, we're all on the same page. The second thing uh, we see here is, and, and, and then I've, I've got this list of three areas in which the people express generosity. After that, the believers who were of one heart and soul, we see this. It says, second half of 32 says, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then jumping down to verse 34, it says, And there was not a needy person among them, for as many were, as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so we, we see here that, these, that this newfound church, this new faith family, that they were, they were generous with their resources and, and more specifically, like their financial resources. Now, I've, I've told you guys from day one at Redemption Hill Church that we do expository teaching. So we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. And, and I love that. I, I love because it allows us to see all this stuff in context. And, and as we pull things, as we see things, we're able to identify it. We understand kind of what happened before. And then we get a chance to see like next week, the result of, right? And there's not this need where we have to go try and find a six-week topic study on this and then another six-week topic study on this and whatever else. <clears throat> and so one of the things I told you early on is, you know, one of the things you don't have to be concerned about with us at, our, at, at Redemption Hill is that we're just going to 
rail on finances and tithing and giving all the time. And to the best of my knowledge, and I could be wrong, I don't know that we've preached a sermon yet on tithing in, in our two years. And this is just a component of, of today. But I want you to understand this and see this. You have this influx of people, all these people that have added to the church. And understand, remember, going back to Acts chapter 2. And in, in fact, keep your finger there. Let's bounce back to Acts chapter 2. Okay, just turn back probably two pages or so. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I'm going to read this again. <clears throat> it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Folks, if you read those five verses and then you read the five verses we read today, it almost sounds identical, doesn't it? I mean, we're only two chapters into this book, and yet Luke's repeating what he just said. And he's reminding the people that, okay, there's this massive amount of people that have come. These, a majority of these people that have come are not from around here. They've traveled from afar. They're here. They're newborn believers. It's a different time. It's not like today where we could have this rally. You can go to a passion concert in Atlanta where these college kids will go and they'll huddle up. And, and maybe some professed Christ. Or, or on, the, on the West Coast where you have a Greg Laurie who will do a harvest fest. And, and he'll preach the gospel. And a massive amount of people will come and they'll get saved. And then they come forward and they get them lined up with another good church. Right? Um, there are no other churches at this time. <laughs> this is it. It's not like... Tallahassee. We, we have a new family that's been coming the last few weeks. Just moved from Jacksonville. And we, Wednesday night, we're having this conversation about being new to a city and having to find a church and how difficult that is. And I've had that same conversation with many of you. And, and if you open up, if, I guess you probably don't even open up yellow pages anymore. If you Google church, right? Like there's a list. There's probably a hundred churches in Tallahassee easily. Where do you begin? Like those with that start with letter A, and then we just work our way down. I mean, like there's a massive amount of churches, but that's not the way it was here in Acts. And so you have people who have come and accepted Jesus, and you can't just let them go. There's nowhere for them to go to. And so they're staying there. They don't have homes. They don't have jobs there. I mean, they have families. What do they do? And you see this Again, I believe this moving of the Holy Spirit, that as he creates this unity, he begins to express this generosity to where these people begin to give. I mean, they're, they're allowing them to stay in their homes. In fact, many of them begin to start selling things to help support them. Now, listen, this portion is not saying sell everything and then give it all to the church. It's not what was being sold, told here. I mean, if they sold everything, they wouldn't have homes to go back into and meet and eat and fellowship in. But it is being very, very clear in saying that as, as the Holy Spirit 
fills us. Within this unity, this newfound unity that we have, an outpouring, though, of this Holy Spirit ought to be us being generous. I was talking with somebody this week, and it's, it's interesting how sometimes we uh, perceive God's blessings in our lives and then even in the lives of other people. You know, jealousy is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, jealousy can creep into the best of us, to all of us. And the things that make us jealous are, may vary. But, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, listen, sometimes we think that when we see somebody who's wealthy, who has great riches, we think, wow, God's really blessed them. But you know what? I'm becoming more and more convinced that, um, and this is a broad statement, so bear with me as you think what I'm saying. But I think oftentimes those great riches aren't necessarily the blessings of God, but a curse from the devil. That doesn't mean if you have money in the bank that I think you're following Satan. Okay, don't misread that. But what I'm saying is this, that what happens is that if we're not careful, we can become slaves to that, right? And it may not be like a quick thing. It may not be just, boom, it just happens. You get money and boom, all of a sudden you're all in the money and you're against that. But no, but what ends up slowly, I think, happening is, is we can go down the slope to where we, we, we begin to, to put so much focus in on our own castle, whether that's our home, maybe it's um, even good intention things of, of like saving up for, for, for you, for your family, and, and being all that. Now, listen, we ought to be good stewards. Um, I, I was in, in Luke, uh, Jesus gives this parable, Luke 12. I'm, I'm just going to read it to you. He says this, Luke 12, 16 through 21 says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful, or plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, those whose will they be? So this is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's Jesus talking. That's not Chad talking. That's not even Luke talking. That's Jesus talking. And you have this picture of this, this rich farmer who's done well, who's probably worked hard. Now he's able to produce more than his barns can fill. And so he thinks, wow, I'll, just build, I'll tear these things down. I'll build bigger barns. I'll, I'll save up that much more so I can just kick back, relax, have a good time. And Jesus just says, man, what a fool. Like, how much do you need? I, I want us to all, and here's the thing when it comes to generosity. God doesn't just call the rich person to be generous and then those who don't have riches to live off the rich man. Okay, that's not biblical principle. As best I can tell, he calls everyone to be generous. In fact, um, in your books or in your Bibles or a piece of paper, you look up today, tomorrow, sometime, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and you read that. And this is Paul, and he's writing, and that's a better 
passage when it comes to giving and tithing. And he talks about this church, the, the Corinthian church. And this is what's crazy. He's having to write to them, and they're begging and pleading to give Paul money, and they're dirt poor. It's a poor church, yet they're giving everything that they can. I will also say this. I think there are times, and one of the things I ask for you as a faith family to do, I really do hope that you guys pray for me, not in selfish ways, but pray that as we look in God's word that that God allows me to see this and, and to express it in his manner, in his way. You see, some could take this passage and say, listen, God's called you to sell all your fields, all your homes, and lay it at the apostles' feet, and, and I'm your apostle. Um, that's, that's not what's being said here, nor am I asking for you to go sell your homes <laughs> and give me all your money. I've said this repeatedly, especially when we get to the time of offering. Listen, um, you ought to be generous. If you don't want to be generous to this church, that by all means, I don't care. I don't really, honestly, I don't, I don't, that's between you and God. When it comes to giving, that's exactly why we have, had it, we have it set up where I have no idea who gives what. I can honestly stand before you and say that. I don't, I don't know. I know our church is giving. Or I know people give in our church. We, we pay our bills. There's money in our account. Um, I know that many of you have, have sacrificed to give. I, I know that, but I, I will tell you this. I don't know which of you have, nor do I care to know. But I want all of us to this idea of being generous with our resources. Um, yes, we need to be good stewards of what we have. Yes, we need to, to make some preparations for the things to come. Yes, we need to pay our bills and do those things. Absolutely. But we also ought to have some foresight in some of these things that we get ourselves into. You know, that, that second video we watched of that, of that child, Rosie, those things, I, I, probably more so because of having kids in that age range, those things are hard for me to watch. And we can say there's a thousand reasons why those things occur. But, but do you understand, um, they estimate 1.4 billion people in the world today live off of $1.25 or less a day. You do the math. I did it already. Somewhere here. That's $456.25 a year. That's approximately 22% of the world's population. If you increase that number to $2.50 a day. That covers approximately 50% of the world's population. And in that, you are still less than $1,000 a year. You know, when I say this thing about generosity, I understand a great deal of us do live paycheck to paycheck. I understand that. And for us, for, for many of us in this room, for us to think, well, you know, I'm not, I can't identify with a rich man. But when we put it into that context, when we put it to the understanding that almost half of the world's population lives on less than $1,000 a year, folks, even if you're a poor college student here today, you're rich by the world's standards. The Bible tells us to whom much is given, much will be required. I, I, I fervently believe this, folks, that, that we all stand before Christ one day. And we have to give account.
And listen, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's not a matter of you didn't give enough or you didn't do nothing. That, like that's your entrance. That's the golden ticket. That's what allows you into heaven. Okay, that, that um, acceptance of him in faith, acknowledging that he is Jesus Christ and, and, and that he died on the cross for your sins and, and, and asking him to forgive your sins and come in your life. By doing that, that is your golden ticket into heaven. But sometimes we have this, this belief that, that when we get to heaven, everything is even Stephen. And that's not the case. And so many of us are laboring so hard to create heaven here on earth where Jesus tells us that all these riches that we're trying to attain, <laughs> I believe Jesus said, it's where, where moth and dust corrupts. That's what we're striving for. When if we flip the coin and flipped our mentality, and it doesn't mean we live as beggars, doesn't mean that we all have to, to, to move into one four-bedroom house and we're all going to just live in one community together. But if we understood, if we grabbed a hold of this generosity that this early church saw, what happens is then there's people outside that begin to look in and say, wow, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why in the world are they doing that? Why in the world are they, are they trying to help these people over in Timbuktu that they'll never see? Why are they sending these boxes of gifts to a child that they will never probably see? What difference does it make? At the end of the day, they have no idea if the kid gets it or doesn't get it. They're never going to talk to the child. They're never going to get a thank you from the child. Why do it? What's the point? What difference does it make? But I think as we look at this passage and you see how the, this early group, these early Christians, these, this first church began, you see this unity. And, and the result of this unity and the moving of the Holy Spirit, they began to become generous with their financial resources and giving things away. And sure, it, was, it, it came at a cost and, and, and wasn't easy, yet they did it. After that, what happens is, is we see that they also became generous with their testimony. Look at uh, verse 32. And he says there, um, oh, yeah, verse 33, I'm sorry. He says, and with the great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I like how we read the same thing or similar thing in Acts chapter 2, where they were attending the, the temple together regularly telling those around them. See, what happens is, is as we come together in unity and as we begin to get generous and as we invest in these things, it becomes real, doesn't it? Um, when it comes to church, like anybody can just roll up here, sit in a seat, listen to Chad ramble for 30, 40, 50 minutes, um, fill up their little cup of coffee and then go on and live life just fine. But, but when you come, and, and if you come early, and all of a sudden you get involved, and you go downstairs, and you start rocking babies, and you start changing diapers, you start teaching those little kids Jesus loves me songs. You, you come on Wednesday nights, and you have adult small group study here, and youth are crammed in my office there where it's 115 degrees, right? And the kids are running around downstairs doing things. Uh, you, you come during the week and you start helping to clean the church and scrub toilets. You start investing your own money into it. All of a sudden, there's this term that we kind of call, quote-unquote, ownership. 
where it means more than just a place I go here and there. But no, you're locked into it. And that's what this faith family was back then. I mean, they, they were unified. They were together. They were helping each other out. And, and they were not just helping with resources, but they're going around and telling everybody else about Jesus. They're like, you guys got to be a part of this. Come, come see this group. Come, come hear about this Jesus. You see, when we're all in, like we can't help but talk about the things that we love, right? Folks, go on Facebook pages and it's littered with pictures of children or cats or dogs or whatever the animal choice is, isn't it? Those are things that you love, right? You can't help but talk about the things that you love. Like if you're around a parent long enough, you're going to hear about how great their child is at basketball or football or spelling or piano or whatever it is. Like we talk about the things that we love and it becomes natural, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And we see this naturalness here in Acts where they naturally are unified. They're naturally giving things out without looking for something in return. And they're naturally just talking about this Jesus that they love. And then I love how it, it kind of ends there. In verse 33, where he says, um, and great grace was upon them all. You know, grace is one of my favorite Bible words. It's one of our core values that, that we're grounded in grace. And grace in this passage, it's, it's the bow that kind of finishes the present off. It's the expression of the unity, of the generosity of resources, the generosity of testimony. It's grace. It's understanding God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, when we sit back, and that's what kind of helps complete this whole generosity thing. You know, we're able to be generous Go back again tonight after you get done reading 2 Corinthians 2, 8, 9, where it talks about giving. Go and read Matthew chapter 6, 19 through the end, through verse 34. The first part, he's, he, that's where he's kind of laying out this idea of treasure and what you're investing in. And the, the last few verses, he, he tells us not to be anxious. So the reason we can be generous the reason we can give things away and not necessarily have to keep track of everything, the reason we can give things away without this, this desire of having to receive something in return is we understand that everything that we have, everything, every breath that we take, every penny in a bank, every car that we drive, every home that we live in, every piece of clothing that we get to wash, every child that we have, every meal that we eat, everything that we have, is a gift from God. And when we begin to walk through life understanding that it's his, and he's allowed us to have it, and be a part of it, it becomes a little bit easier to begin to say, all right, Jesus, here, here. And then you have this amazingly awesome, vicious cycle. Because folks, we cannot outgive God. <laughs> It's impossible. It's not like we can say, okay, Jesus, here's, here, you can, I, I have $100. I'll raise you 100 Can you do it? Can you do it? No. He is the author of everything. 
And so as we begin to live this and see these healthy marks of this church in acts of unity, of generosity in in finances and resources, generosity in going and telling other people about Jesus Christ, and then this generosity in grace where we understand everything is God's. We understand those verses that we quote so often. We think of Romans 5.8, when God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so when we, when we consider that verse, and we understand that verse, when, when he says that when we were yet sinners, he says we, that means everybody. He doesn't say this people group. He doesn't say um, only those who have done these sins, but he says we, all of us. And so every time someone walks in these doors, we can understand that we are all sinners, all of us. But the outpouring of grace, the power of grace, is loving each other anyways. And as we go and we tell people about Jesus, and as we see people coming to the church, and they may not look the way we look, they may not act the way we act, they may not talk the way we talk, their kids may not play the way our kids play, the power of grace is to love them anyways. That's the power of grace. Folks, this is what I believe are the, the, the four benchmarks here of a healthy church that we see in Acts. The conditions were not ripe, if you will. The model here of building a church in the midst of persecution sounds ridiculous. We live in an amazing country, the greatest in the world, bar none. But I believe with each passing day that that passage that we read today and considered will become more and more and more important to us in our lives. I believe as we see and continue to see a slide in morality, I think as we continue to see a slide um, in the way our country is, when we may begin to lose certain freedoms, as we continue to see persecution come in, I think it's passages like this, it's churches like ours that become so incredibly important. So I pray, I I, I ask you to join me in these prayers that we individually and then we corporately make those four benchmarks in our lives, but in our churches as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for all the things you've done for us. Lord, I thank you for uh, all the gifts that you've given to us. I thank you for just the, the ability, the freedom that we have, that we can come to church and we can talk about you and we can, we can learn about you. We can sing songs to you and, and read your word without any fears. Lord, I, I thank you for this church, Redemption Hill Church. And I, I believe, Lord, while we are far from perfect, that in many ways, as I read that passage, I see that being played out in our church. I see a great sense of unity. And while we do have differences of opinions and things of that nature, that we see this, this great kindred spirit. And Lord, we do and have seen a great deal of generosity with, with financial gifts and, and resources. 
of people giving things and sacrificing to give. I know, Lord, I believe that there are people who are sacrificing to, to just even put a small amount in that offering on a regular basis. And there is an inner struggle in all of us when it comes to our different resources and things that you've given to us. So God, I pray that you allow us to have the right perspective on those things. And Lord, for some, it's not, a, it's not necessarily a financial resource, Lord, but it's, an, it's another resource. It's, a, it's talents and abilities that you've given them that they're just not using. They're not, they're not giving to you. So Lord, I, Holy Spirit, I, pr- I really do pray that you right now sincerely convict us and show us what areas we need to, we need to change, we need to move, whether it's being generous in those resources, maybe it's being generous in our time, our talents, our abilities, it's generous in, in sharing our testimony, telling others about you. Maybe it's just being generous in grace and, and, and we just get rid of this judgmental crap. We just come to grips with, man, we're all messed up people. And you died for all of us. Every single one of us. And there's a community that we're placed in that right now is blinded and they need to see you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you just work in us that you convict us, not me, but you convict us and change us. Do a great work. In your son's name we pray. Amen.